And so today we take up the third of the seven letters to the churches in Asia. And we have read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I would invite any of our sermon audio listeners who have not read that passage to please do so before proceeding further. I hold in my hand a little book that was published in the year 1987. Some of you here recognize it already. It's the Centennial History of Our Congregation. Reedy River Presbyterian Church, a Centennial Celebration. 100-year anniversary of our church in 1987. Now, one thing that becomes very evident as you read that book is that we, we cannot properly understand the history of our church without having some knowledge of the people and the land in which it was established. Back in 1887, to be specific. Knowing about our church involves knowing something about Greenville, South Carolina, Greenville County, Conestee, or the, the area here that would become known as Conestee. That's all very important in getting a full understanding of what our history is and who we are and where we've come from and that sort of thing. So as we come to this third of the seven letters to the churches of Asia, we face a similar challenge regarding this church, the church at Pergamos. Now, let me just say, if, uh, if you're wondering, you may have a translation that says Pergamum or Pergamos. I did my best to try to figure this thing out, and uh, I thought maybe it was a difference in manuscripts because the book of Revelation has varying readings, if you're, whether you're going, if you're going to the traditional text versus the more critical text. But in this case, to the best of my awareness, it has to do with the difference of pronunciation of these place names in terms of ancient Greek and more modern Greek. If you find another explanation, I'd be glad to correct myself or add to the information. But that's why you may have a variant. So, in order to fully appreciate what Christ says to this church, we need to know something about the city of Pergamos, just as we needed to know about Smyrna and we needed to know about Ephesus. So, we're given something of a clue to what that city was like in this passage. And the first thing that we learn about Pergamos is the Lord says, it is the place where Satan dwells. And even worse than that, Satan's throne is said to be there. How would you like being in a church located in an area, in a city, in a town where Satan has his headquarters? In Roman times, the city of Pergamos was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a city of great learning and commerce. It was the seat of the Roman government in that part of the empire. There was a library there that was said to house over 200,000 pieces of literature. We'll say books. Of course, they didn't have books like we have them now, but it was a very vast library. And it, had a, it was a city full of beautiful designed buildings, most of which were dedicated to the worship of various gods. Now, for our purposes, there were two gods in particular that were worshipped there that we need to know about. One of them was the god known as Aesculapius. This was a god that was pictured as a serpent, notice that, a serpent, wrapped around a staff. Now, I don't know if you can picture that image, but that's a common image even today. It's associated with medicine, isn't it? And that goes back to this very thing. We might wonder about that affiliation today, and maybe the snake, the serpent, is a more appropriate field for that 
area of business, if I can call it that, than anything else. But in this case, this Escalapius was pictured as a serpent, and the people believed that by praying to that God, they would be healed of various illnesses. And one way they would seek that healing was by going to the great temple dedicated to Escalapius in Pergamos, and at the instruction of the priests and the attendants, they would lie on a floor in the temple that was covered with hundreds of snakes, serpents, non-poisonous, of course. The belief was that the snakes touched your body and you would be healed. So, as you might suppose, we today would call this a center of medical tourism. We have similar things like this today, of course, not quite so primitive, uh, but there are some parts of the world that are sort of destinations in, in big cities and other parts of the world where people from the West, United States and Europe, at least they were doing this, they would fly to these big cities and they could get very complicated surgeries done and, and well done. I mean, top shelf medical help, but at half the cost or less than what it cost here. We well, had something like that going on in Pergamos. People were going there from all parts of the empire because the reputation of the healing snakes at the temple of Escalapius. And the fact that many people believed that they were healed from that type of thing, well, it led them to give this god a certain title. And that title was Savior, Escalapius Savior. And that may be one reason why Jesus refers to Satan's throne being there. I said it may be. I think there's another reason. Because the other god that was worshipped there was the Roman emperor, whoever happened to be Caesar at the time. The city of Pergamos was the first city in all of the Roman parts of Asia that had been given permission by the government to erect a building that was for the express purpose of worshiping the emperor of Rome as a god. And that they did with great zeal. Rome was, to the devoted peoples of Pergamos, the giver of life, the giver of wealth, the giver of health, the giver of civilization, the giver of law and order. All of this flowed from divine Caesar and the divine Roman government. And as I've said several times already, all the citizens of the empire were required to offer an annual tribute to Caesar. Now, basically what that would entail is that you would either go to a temple like this one at Escalapius, or more often than not, Throughout the empire, they would have these shrines in various places, I suppose some of them along the highways and the roads, that were a place where you could go and offer the annual sacrifice to the emperor. And that sacrifice consisted of sprinkling some incense over like a barbecue grill type burner. And that might not seem like such a complicated thing, but there was a part of that ritual that was simply unacceptable to the Christians in those days. Because as you offered the sacrifice with the incense in the name of Caesar, you were also required to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. Of all the cities of Asia where the church of Jesus Christ would have been most likely encountering persecution from the Romans, Pergamos was that place. And that is the main reason, I think, that Christ says the throne of Satan is there. Notice in verse 12, Christ says, that he is the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. Now, you might suppose that that's just one of these symbolic ways 
that Jesus is somehow declaring his power and authority. Well, it certainly is that. But there's a lot more to it than just that. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 16, the Lord says in a similar way that he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. And like many of the other symbolic references in this book, that was a direct challenge to Rome. Friends, this is another example of how we, in our day, read this from one perspective, and the power and the force of these words just blows by us because we're not reading them, we're not reading these words with the eyes of the people of that first century setting. People were familiar with a name or a person who was having seven stars in his hand, so to speak, but it wasn't Jesus Christ. The Roman emperors frequently had coins minted with their faces on them. Like, you know, we have uh, quarters with George Washington's face or head on it. But in this case, many of the Caesars, like Nero, like Tiberius and others, along the rim of the coin with their face on it, there were seven stars placed there to show their pretended power and authority over the world. So in that context, what Jesus says here is a direct challenge by him to the claims of Roman state authority. Now, the sword, of course, coming back to chapter 2, that was the main weapon of warfare back in those days. And each of these nations, uh, the Romans, the Persians, the Assyrians, and whatnot, they each had a particular kind of sword that distinguished their mode of warfare. Now, the Roman legions were most effective and the most powerful military force in the world at the time, Because they used a two-edged sword. Sharp edges on both sides, not just one. And so the Roman sword became a symbol of Rome's power and might. It was a symbol of life and death. It was a symbol that Rome believed was all her own. But Christ says, not anymore. Christ is Lord. He is the holder of the two-edged sword. You know, we, uh, in these studies, have had to focus, uh, understandably, on the issue of government. I have tried to point out to you that Caesar is not just some crazy guy who thinks he's God. He's the head of the Roman government. And the government, whether Caesar was proclaimed to be a god or not, uh, you know, originally the Senate ran the government of Rome. They claimed divine authority for themselves. So this issue of human government becomes central for us in these discussions. And let me just say that, biblically speaking, human government was designed by God for stability and peace among communities of people. But, and this is what's missing in in all the pagan forms of government, including our own today, human government itself is to be stabilized by the law word of Yahweh, the word of God. And if that stabilization, if that foundation of human government is missing, then you have pagan government. And sooner or later, it either leads to decay and destruction or tyranny or all of the above. Many of you have no doubt heard the old adage that religion and politics don't mix. Well, that's simply not true. It's a lie from the beginning. Because not only do they mix, they are also unavoidably bound together. You know, if you were to stand up here and proclaim with the loudest voice, Caesar is Lord, well, you would be making as much a religious statement as a political one. And the same is true when you declare Jesus Christ is Lord. 
to confess, as God willing we will do in a little bit, in the means of the Apostles' Creed, that Christ is Lord, is to one, at the same time, make a political statement as a religious statement. Because everything you believe about government, politics, education, law, morality, all of it is directly tied to what you believe about who God is and who man is. And in the final analysis, there are only two kinds of government in this world. It's either Satan's or Christ's government. Now, in verse 13, in Pergamos, those two governments were dwelling side by side. But they were not at peace. The Christians in that town were holding fast to the only true king and head of all things, Christ Jesus. And one of them had already been put to death for his faith. Jesus here names him Antipas. And Christ calls him my faithful martyr. Now, I want you to notice something about that. If you'll hold your place here in chapter 2, verse 13, and look back to chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus says there, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, Jesu Christu homartus hopistos. I'm not trying to impress you with my Greek. I don't have impressive Greek. But I want you to hear that. Jesu Christu, Jesus Christ, homartus hopistos. The faithful witness, the way it's translated in verse 5. But my point is, here in chapter 2, verse 13, it's the same wording. Homartus hopistos. The faithful martyr and the faithful witness are written exactly the same way. And the point is, Jesus uses one of his own titles to describe this dear Christian brother who gave the ultimate sacrifice of his life for Christ and his kingdom. You know, friends, the names that we are called by the names, the people, or the institutions that we choose to be identified with are very important. Way back in 1946, a Japanese man by the name of Akira Morita, along with a close friend of his, started a company in what was left of Tokyo following the war. They call their company Tokyo Telecommunications and Engineering. About 10 years after they started the company, Mr. Morita and his company, made the world's very first portable transistor radio. It was a revolution in audio entertainment. And it caught the attention of the American wristwatch company, Bulova. Now, some of you may remember Bulova. I don't even know if they're still in business. B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova. Some of you may have Bulova watches. They were a famously popular and wealthy company, and they wanted to buy those radios from Mr. Morita. Part of the, and they offered him a lot of money, which he could have used at the time. But part of the deal was is that they would sell these transistor portable radios under their own name, Bulova. Mr. Morita did not want anyone's name on his radios but his own. And he had already come up with another name for his company and his radios. So he turned down that deal. And that would be the first step. And what would become one of the largest and most successful radio and video manufacturing companies in all of history. Mr. Maria had decided to name his company Sony. What a difference a name can make. So in the city of Pergamos, if you were identified with the kingdom of Satan, if you had that name, Caesar's name, Rome's name, well, things would go well for you. But to be identified with Christ, that was a dangerous thing. I wonder how many of us here are aware 
that according to some estimates, now these may have changed in recent years, I don't know the last time these studies were done, but you can find fairly recent estimates that say that Greenville County, where we live, has more church-going, conservative, evangelical, Protestant Christians than just about anywhere else in the country, leave alone in the state of South Carolina. Now, of course, many people know that Bob Jones University is here, but there are other Bible colleges and seminaries and denominational headquarters in our area, in our county. So on one level, we might say that around these parts, it's not really such a big deal to risk to make a stand for Christ on some moral issue in the law of God, although it's becoming increasingly controversial, isn't it? At least not, say, compared to a place like San Francisco. And so too with the believers in Pergamos. It was a dangerous thing to be a Christian there. The church at Pergamos was, for the most part, a faithful church, but they were not without their problems. So we find that in this church a rather different situation than what we found at the church of Ephesus. Because those people, they were the real heresy hunters. They were always on their guard against false doctrine. But Jesus criticized them because their love had grown cold. But now here at Pergamos, they evidently had a deep love for Christ and for each other, but they were tolerant of those who promoted false doctrine. Now, you heard earlier today in our reading from the book of Numbers something about this man, Balaam, who's referenced here in these verses in Revelation chapter 2. Now, his story and the episode referred to here in chapter 2 covers about three, four chapters in the book of Numbers, so it's not possible to go into all those details. But let me give you the basic story. An evil pagan king named Balak was getting worried Because God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, were found to be almost impossible to defeat in battle. And one by one, Balak saw his pagan neighbors fail as they tried to destroy the old covenant church, Israel. And so, Balak made the acquaintance of Balaam, a false prophet. And Balaam suggested to Balak that, you know, the only way you're going to defeat these Israelites is through inside corruption. Corrupt them from within. And so the people of Israel were enticed by Balaam, the false prophet, to forsake God's law and to jump on the bandwagon with all the pagans who lived around them. You know, uh, why be different, Israel? Why stand out from the crowd? And the results for Israel were very bad indeed. Listen to these verses from Numbers 25, verses 1 to 5. I'm reading it from the NIV. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with, with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before those gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal or Baal of Peor. And Yahweh's anger burned against him. And Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that Yahweh's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping Baal of Peor. In the church in Pergamos, there were people doing the same thing that Balaam did to Israel. They were a faction inside that church who wanted to make peace with Rome. They wanted their fellow believers to loosen up a bit and and not be so strict. Don't be so hard-headed. So you eat a little food, sacrifice to an idol. So what? So you, you and the guys go down to that 
pagan festival where things get a little wild. So what? Hey, you're under grace. You're not under law. You're a Christian, so you can do like you please. Do what you want. Does that sound familiar? Well, it might because, unfortunately, there are Christians even in our time who promote that kind of idea in some fashion. But in this case, that's exactly what the Nicolaitans were teaching. And Jesus refers to them again here. He says that he hates them and that kind of phony Christianity. Please note that what the Lord is criticizing the church at Pergamos for was not that they, as an entire church, had bought into these kinds of teachings, nor that the pastor or the elders were teaching the doctrines of Balaam, or even that a majority of the congregation were on board with that. No, he was upset with them because they were willing to tolerate even a handful of people in their midst who were promoting those false teachings. In other words, they were being criticized for being lax in practicing church discipline. See, this is the requirement of Christ, of his church leadership, to admonish, to rebuke, to censure, or even expel those from the membership of the church who refuse to heed the biblical counsel and advice of the elders in matters of controversy within the church body. Now, look back at verse 16 of chapter 2. Jesus warns them that unless some church discipline comes against the compromisers, he would come and fight them with the sword of his mouth. So he calls them to repentance. Now, you know, uh, today when people hear that word, they think it means to feel sorry about getting caught doing something that you really didn't believe was all that bad in the first place. But friends, that's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance Yeah, maybe it involves feeling sorry, but it means feeling sorry enough to quit doing the thing. There's both the emotional and the physical side to it in biblical repentance. That that church had to do more than just be sorry. They, They had let things get out of hand. They had to do something to prove it. And he warned that he would come against that church in judgment if they refused to discipline those people in their midst. And apparently, I guess this is speculation on my part, but apparently... That must have been what eventually happened. Because I don't think there's been a Christian witness in that part of the Near East, modern Turkey, ancient Asian Rome. There hasn't been a Christian witness there probably for a thousand years. That's just a guess on my part. Well, finally, in verse 17, we read those familiar words that have been spoken to us from these other churches. Listen to it again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, you know, that part is the same in all these that we've read. But then here's the difference in this church. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What in the world does that mean? Well, the Lord is promising them two things to all who overcome. But let's first of all ask, what does it mean to overcome? And what were they overcoming? What are we to overcome? Well, for the Pergamos Christians, they were to overcome their tendency to be too lenient with false doctrine. And we ought to examine our lives and the life of our church to see if we have become slack in that area. But the command for us to overcome extends to every avenue of our personal lives where sin rises up and threatens to overcome us. Has our commitment to biblical morality... And God's law been overcome by Satan? 
And who is the overcomer in your life, in my life, in the area, say, of finances? Now, the first thing the Lord promises to all who overcome is some hidden manna to eat. Now, manna, of course, was the food that God caused to fall from heaven to the ancient Israelites as they wandered in the desert. They had escaped Egyptian bondage and their journeying toward the promised land. The Lord provided this special bread for them to eat as, he, as they made their way. And according to the book of Exodus, some of that manna was to be gathered and stored up in the Ark of the Covenant as a memorial for what the Lord had done for them. Now here, just as we learned last week, with the reference to the tree of life in the paradise of, God, uh, uh, paradise of God, we want to ask ourselves, how is this rather strange Older Testament reference applying to us today? Well, the answer is simple. It applies to us today in Christ Jesus. See, in the Older Testament era, God's presence among his people was in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy Tabernacle. In the New Covenant era, God has come to dwell with us in a person, the man Christ Jesus. And he was and he is the presence of God among us today through his spirit. And like that manna of old, he is the bread of life. So when his spirit comes to dwell in us, then we are empowered to overcome in this life. We thereby become overcomers with him who is the supreme overcomer. But the overcomers are also promised something else here. A white stone on which a new name is inscribed, a name unknown to all except those who receive it. So, again, going back to the early parts of Genesis, we know that there were white stones that covered the ground in the Garden of Eden. In the book of Exodus, the breastplate worn by the high priest of the tabernacle was adorned with two white stones on which all the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were inscribed. Now, we also know that around the time the book of Revelation was written, it was a common practice in Roman society to give white stones to victorious gladiators. And in other cases, in judicial cases, for example, white stones would be used by jurors to cast a verdict of innocent, while black stones were used to cast a verdict of guilty. So, here, the Lord is promising to all who overcome through him a white stone of victory and a declaration of not guilty. And the name written on the stone, that is your own name. Because like the bread of life which is hidden from the fallen world, so too is the joy and the truth which only you as a faithful believer truly know and appreciate. See, to the world outside of Christ, this is a secret thing. It is something unknown to them, something they cannot even fathom. I was reading a story recently about a woman who was a school teacher. She had been a first grade school teacher in this community for a number of years. This goes back a long time ago. Her name was Miss Smith. As I said, she taught first grade. But the summer before the ensuing school year, she got married and she became Mrs. John Williams. Well, when the school started in September, she told her first grade class, many of whom had, had brothers and sisters who were her students, she said, now... I am Mrs. Williams. You call me Mrs. Williams, not Miss Smith. Well, later that day, the mother of one of the students asked her daughter, Dear, what's your teacher's name? And the little girl said, Well, she says her name is Miss Williams, but she sure looks like Miss Smith to me. My friends, as members of the family of God, we become overcomers through Christ. 
And he, give a, he gives us a new name, the name Christian. And his message to us is the same as it was to the church at Pergamos. He says, in effect, I want you, my followers, to so live your lives that others will look at you and say, he or she says their name is Christian. And they sure do look like Christians to me. Amen. Let us pray.